TBA 21 Academy Radio in collaboration with Mahazep Radio. Aridity Lines, Episode 4 Scarcity, Development Politics and Corruption, Beirut's Water Systems. You are listening to Aridity Lines, a podcast series invoking the local ecological knowledges that delicately tread the porous borders between land and water bodies around the Mediterranean Sea. And here your host, Reem Shadid. Welcome back to Aridity Lines. In the fourth episode, my guest is researcher, writer, and arts practitioner Nadia Cristini. She was a TBA 21 Academy Ocean Fellow in 2021 and is a PhD candidate in History, Anthropology and Science, Technology and Society at MIT. Her dissertation research looks at how cities that face water supply challenges, which are expected to intensify with climate change, are imagining, planning and preparing for the future of water. The cities she focuses on are Cape Town, Dubai and Los Angeles. Los Angeles and Cape Town lie in what are known as Mediterranean climate zones which are areas characterized by mild wet winters and warm and dry summers. They share climates and climate challenges with cities in the Mediterranean basin, like Barcelona, Palermo, and Beirut. These include historically volatile precipitation and projections of more extreme volatility, and in some cases, significant drying in the future. In today's episode, we will discuss water supply systems and water-mediated social relations in Beirut, where Nadia is from and currently based. Beirut presents an entry point into a better understanding of water scarcity or aridity in the Mediterranean as a hydrosocial rather than purely hydrological problem. Departing from her research on urban water systems, Nadia speaks with Karim Ain Sabbagh, a filmmaker and researcher who specializes in the political economy of water and development, Roland Riashi, a scholar of the political ecology of food and water, and Sari Musa, a musician and water systems specialist. Their conversations shed light on how and why water is mismanaged by the public sector, the ways in which public services like water provisions have been de facto privatized, and how local and global political, economic, and social relations get reinforced through large-scale water infrastructures funded by international development agencies. Water emerges as a medium through which significant and transnationally relevant contemporary forces like neoliberalism, the economic development machine, and environmental injustice take form and can be seen. Posing questions such as, how can it rain so much in some years and water still be short? Why do dams continue to be built and money spent even though the system feels like it never improves? And what might a watershed approach from mountain to sea allow us to see? Beirut emerges as a context that is both unique in its own right, but one that is also reflective of broader issues in the Mediterranean region and across the global south. In previous episodes, guests fostered a multi-layered and holistic approach, whether through bringing local ecological knowledges on water walks encounters and imaginary interspecies alliance as a signifier of the grave state of the Mediterranean's marine biology, or reviving sustenance practices and studying new seasons and habitats to engage with. Nadia builds on this to underscore the significance of water scarcity and climate change, projected water stress and readiness in the face of it as social issues. 
In today's episode, we invite the listeners to envision with us this deeply webbed network of causes, effects, and signifiers of constructed arid presence and imagined arid futures. We hope to come together and think anew the conditions, possibilities, and solutions for alternatives available to us, but not clearly visible in the current status quo. In today's episode, you will hear a conversation between Nadia and I with excerpts from the interviews that Nadia conducted during her research weaved in at different times. As a reminder, the voices are those of Roland Riyashi, Karim Eid Sabbagh, and Sari Musa. Hi, Nadia. Hi, Rim. Thank you so much for accepting this invitation. I was hoping that we can start today with uh, more about you, your research, your interest in water. I came to water through an interest in resources and how resources were managed. And in particular, my initial interest was in oil and um, in um, the future, right? Uh, I'm really interested in questions of futurity and how the future is being imagined. And there's a lot of discourse right now on a post-oil future. And so I was really interested in thinking about what does this um, transition in resources mean? You know, whether socially, politically, technologically, like what's going to happen as we prepare for this future, which is imagined to be drastically different from the past. And I kind of, over time, gravitated towards another resource, which was water. And I became interested in this question of, you know, the future of water. And water, to me, was another resource that was, you know, I mean, in another sense, it's kind of, you know, how we're imagining the future of water as that the nature of that resource, once again, is changing, right? So it's very similar to this oil to post-oil transition was, for me, this water, you know, in a kind of hydro scene you know, hydrology, whatever, to an Anthropocene hydrology, right? So how are we preparing for a future of water that's potentially radically different than the one that we live in today? How are we imagining that future? And how are we planning under so much uncertainty? And I'm really interested in cities. And so I kind of started thinking about, well, you know, I'm really curious to understand um, how various cities in different parts of the globe are planning for this future of water. Now, more generally, I'm from Beirut, so I do have an interest in the Mediterranean as a geographic location itself. Yes. Um, and that's kind of how I got to, you know, this episode. And can you tell us what you've been working on um, more recently? So I see this work as an extension of my, of like some of the central questions in my dissertation, right, um, to another location. So I'm really interested in thinking about how some of the problems around scarcity or shortages or whatever they are, are a product of the ways in which things are managed. And the ways things are, the ways in which things are managed are, are socially, you know, like they're, uh, within them, we have to consider the role of like social relations, political structures, you know, um, political economic relations. So my idea kind of with this, when I got this invitation, you know, to think about this, I thought, I have never really looked at Beirut, which is a city that I'm from. Yeah. And I was always shocked when I did research, when I talked to people, and they would tell me that they didn't know where the water in the city that they lived in had come from. And I thought, one second, I don't even know where the water <laughs> of Beirut comes from. So I thought that this would be a good opportunity for me to understand a place I had grown up in, but also like answer some questions that I had had growing up, right? Like... It rained so much 
Why do we have to fill up our tank in our building with water uh, when it was a super rainy you know, season? Yeah. Or um, why can't I drink the water that comes out of my tap? Uh, why can't I swim off the coast of Beirut? Um, so all of these you know, questions are things that I wanted to kind of use this as an opportunity to begin to understand how one might answer those questions and the role of the social the political and the political economic in understanding them. And just maybe if I could add one thing, it's um, to think like about why Beirut. I mean, besides the fact that it was somewhere where I'm from, it's a place where like, you know, some of these things are so visible, like mm-hmm. the sociality and the political economic relations and all of these things. They're so visible because, I mean, somehow because the system doesn't work so well, right? Like when the system works really well, and I think there are some anthropologists of infrastructure who've talked about this, like, right? Like infrastructure is invisible until it breaks down, mm-hmm. right? And so there's something about the fact that the infrastructure is so heavily dependent on private modes of sourcing water or, you know, like um, knowing someone or, you know, all of these things that like, it's it's a place where these social political and political economic relations are so on the surface in ways that they sometimes remain hidden in other places where the infrastructure works that I think Beirut becomes a really good place for being able to like very clearly see things that might not be as visible in other places. Can you tell us please um, about water systems in Beirut? The voices that you'll hear will do a better job but anyways. (laughs) um, So essentially from what I understand from my conversations with um, uh, the researchers and um, water practitioners that I spoke to, um, Beirut basically becomes, uh, like the history of water in Beirut, I mean water systems in Beirut is about like two centuries old. Beirut itself like is a quite an old city, but it really flourishes in the 19th century. And it flourishes in the 19th century as a result of its integration into the global economy. Um, at this time, there's Beirut is under Ottoman control. Um, and the 19th century sees kind of the waning of Ottoman power and the increasing influence of Europe and European powers, and specifically Britain and France. Uh, and this is significant because at the time, the Ottoman Empire is kind of on its last legs. And, um, and it's increasingly indebted due to infrastructure development projects, actually, um, to these European powers. And so uh, among the things that happen are what actually Ronan Riyashi refers to as an early form of structural adjustment, you know, structural adjustment, basically. So something quite uh, important happened at the end of the 19th century. In 1870, it was part of the, uh, like the reforms that the, that the Ottoman Empire signed with the European powers because the Ottoman Empire was indebted. So they were kind of a, let's say we call them today, conditional loan. So, okay, you went to war in Crimea, we helped you. So you are indebted to us. So you should do, as we know, structural adjustment policies. So privatize lands, privatize uh, uh, water supplies in cities and uh, privatize uh, trams and water and electricity. So the concession system and the European concession system started to get into the Ottoman Empire. And in, in 1870, um, Beirut was uh, granted the first uh, contract, of pri- pri- privatization contract, a concessionary contract, of bringing water to Beirut. But essentially, the important thing to note is that it's kind of a private concession, and this stays the case, 
you know, during kind of the final days of the Ottoman Empire in Lebanon, um, under the French mandate, which lasts from about the end of World War One until, you know, um, the 1940s, basically when Lebanon gains independence. And we move into, you know, what he talks about as this kind of like developmentalist national phase. This is like the decolonial era. There's a discourse around like, you know, national resources, national resource development, um, and the, you know, Beirut kind of water establishment kind of becomes public once again. And then we came to the national construction period uh, after, uh, after the independence, where, where the water question became a sovereignty question. Uh, we had uh, the unparalleled the creation of the Zionist state. So, and there was this whole uh, narrative that if we don't harness our own water, well, the Zionists gonna um, uh, end up uh, appropriating it. So, and this narrative we see it until today. So, and kind of the third phase happens in the post Civil War era, uh, and that's kind of when the Beirut. Um, the water system eventually moves towards being set up to become privatized. So it was kind of a pendulum. It went from privatization of burgeoning city, interesting to privatize it and get back to nationalization where you were in the post-colonial era and then get got back in the 2000 to a privatization again discussion. Uh, so the pendulum was between the private and the public, it's a sense. Today, if we talk about privatize, what I want to say is that if we talk about privatization of water in uh, Beirut, it's not something new. There's two centuries old history about it. And there's a couple of things that are important to mention here. And one is that from 1975 to 1990, uh, Lebanon experienced a 15 year civil war. Mm -hmm. uh, and during that time, things continued to run, but they ran in a very decentralized way, like, even Kerim Eid Sabah talks about how, you know, like militias maybe controlled, you know, sources of springs or private wells. Um, so it was very fragmented uh, and a lot of infrastructure was destroyed. By the exit of the war, you have these 22 water offices that have been largely independent, doing whatever they wanted, getting money from ever, wherever they could. I mean, there was a ministry. And, you know, there was obviously relations between the ministry and these water offices, but yeah, again, I, you know, one would have to do more specific research on how this was managed, but they were pretty independent simply given how governance and government worked during the war and how there was, you know, a multitude of, of government, governments and disagreement on who is president and who isn't. And so infrastructure was destroyed. Payment to offices was low, um, so collection rates, um, production was very limited, water production, the networks were damaged and leaky, the offices were understaffed. Lebanon comes out of the Civil War in 1990 and there is this massive reconstruction and in order for that reconstruction to happen there's massive borrowing of loans. And so what happens is there's this, you know, infrastructure development program that doesn't work so well for various reasons, which we can eventually get into. Um, there's increasing indebtedness or spiraling debt. And then the loans start to come in with, you know, what we typically call structural adjustment kind of conditions that are attached to these loans. Right. And that's like among that is kind of the privatization of public services. 
Thank you for this quick bit comprehensive background on the various phases of Lebanon's history since the Ottoman rule um, and, and on water systems in Beirut. Um, so understanding the complexity of it all, can you talk to us about how some of the causes of the civil war, which as we know continue to play an active role in the country's present, have impacted water management in Lebanon? So what happens, kind of, we merge out of the civil war in 1990, 1991, and there's, you know, this coming together in which some of that, in which the sectarian system stays, a little bit of the balance of power is shifted around to reflect more the demographic realities. There's a shift in power, which I think is very important, um, which kind of gives veto power to the different... You know, so so the Christians that were predominant before in parliament had to give up some power and, and power was kind of evened out. So, you know, the, the president, which is a Maronite, had veto power. The speaker of the house has a form of veto power and the prime minister had veto power. So, you know, if they didn't agree, nothing would happen. And this is kind of what characterizes really all government in Lebanon since. Uh, and specifically the water sector also. That, you know, without sectarian understanding, very little happens. And that's kind of how politics functions here in general. Like, there's no ability to move forward until everybody has had their piece of the pie. The warlords that headed these militias become the politicians in power. Uh, and they're able to continue a system of kind of, you know, like providing for their people, right, or their communities um, that explains some of the dysfunctionality that exists today, okay. right? There's this like client-patron uh, relationship um, in which, let's say, during the war, like you needed water, so you went to, you know, the kind of like the militia men that ran your neighborhood, Right. And they would provide you with water. Mm. And so there's this kind of the, there are these m many, many sub communities that emerge as a result of this fragmentation uh, that are basically like client patron relations that continue to this day. Always coupled to this is that projects are tendentially much more expensive than they needed to be had. Would you have had? some kind of, you know, proper popular oversight. But obviously that never happened. Again, I think intentionally, nobody wanted this to happen. Lebanon was granted across three uh, decades, three billion of US dollars uh, for, the, for the water and wastewater uh, sectors. And, and no evidence was ever made of um, improving the, the supply. So, uh, yeah, we're talking about three billion here of questionable investments that were made in the country that were mainly funded by donors that claim transparency, uh, accountability, etc. that funded a whole um, oligarchy um, distributing water projects uh, according to their constituencies, um, uh, like uh, funding their own uh, companies, construction comp companies, to, to build actually um, like white, a lot of white elephants projects in Lebanon. It would be good if you can tell us like what are some of these problems that were that kind of emerged after the war, and 
and yeah, what are the different, like through your research and your interviews, like what are the different approaches, um, not approaches, or what have, what has been done about them? So because of that fragmentation and, you know, the absence of like the public sector for so long, you had, for example, a proliferation of, you know, private wells. But so because water supply wasn't reliable uh, during the war, but also after the war, especially in a place like Beirut, you know, during the war, all the buildings that were built were built immediately with a well attached into them, right? So, you, you know, before you build your building, you'd go and put the casing for a well, and then you'd build your building on top so that you have access to water. Uh, so we go from 3,000 wells in the 1970s to what's estimated at around something like 80,000 wells. Um, today. I mean, this is across the Lebanese ter territory, but it's a huge number, and many of these are actually unlicensed. Um, so, and, and oftentimes unlicensed because, uh, you know, someone knows someone who knows someone, basically. <laughs> so in Beirut specifically, uh, we have a large problem of uh, uh, seawater intrusion into the, into the aquifers. You have a system that's pretty old that hasn't actually had its pipes replaced in ages. So you have gigantic amounts of leaks. Mm. You have, um, because of that, you know, like a lot of these pipes are like lead pipes, for example, so you can't drink the water. But obviously then drinking water in bottles is supplied, you know, either in, in the one liter kind of daily bottles or in gallons. And then there's there a distinction between the kind of three, four companies that do this, you know, globally recognized stuff, standards, two of which are Nestle and Pepsi-Cola. So again, you get multinationals profiting tremendously of it. And then you get um, the local shops that, you know, produce water through reverse osmosis and then sell it locally. And, you know, problem there is very few of them are actually licensed by the Ministry of Water or the Ministry of Health. You have, you know, the, these private sources because... Um, this is the case because there's intermittent supply in part because there's just not enough water. We're talking about three hours supply every 48 hours in the, in the capital, for, for instance. This is on average. Sometimes it gets low to three hours per week. Just the time to fill up the plastic systems that are everywhere in Beirut City. And then you use from that water, you know, and it's kind of if it lasts you until the next day when you get your three hours then you're good. Otherwise, you have to figure out ways to get your own water. So there's, you know, intermittent supply. Um, there's people that are building wells in part because of that intermittent supply problem, in part because there's a massive urbanization that's happening. So there's like, you know, massive suburbs, uh, massive informal, you know, settlement. Uh, and that's because of a prioritization of Beirut over, you know, hinterland development. Uh, so that's another problem, like the system can't keep up, so there are these informal ways of, you know, keeping up. So you've got intermittent supply, uh, you know, these tanks that are in your building, the wells that are, you know, kind of complementing the, because either because you're actually not connected to the network, or because your access isn't enough, right? Like, I live in a building that has a well, that actually, like, uh, where the water that comes from the government goes into the well, that then, like, basically, so it's kind of, we have a mix of well water and public, you know, public service water uh, that we draw on because the amount of water that we get from the government, from the public network is not enough. There's a real reliance on these, like, off-network mm -hmm. systems within, you know, 
not just the city, but here we're talking about the city of Beirut, but also across the country. Not to talk about the, the huge budget that is that water and like the private um, off-network supply of water that many, most of the household rely on is is we're getting closer to a two digits percentage of the budgets, maybe 20% to supply themselves in water. Back then it was around between five and 10%, uh, 10 years ago, maybe depending on the level of income uh, of the household. But now with the hyperinflation and water necessity, necessities, uh, like uh, I'm sure we're talking around 20% of household income going to uh, water supply, at least for drinking. While public water services have not been privatized, there's essentially been a complete hollowing out of that public service, right? And, you know, like contracts, you know, like get contracted out to, um, you know, different companies, whether, you know, consultants to make plans, I don't know what, right? And, and you know, to build, etc. So that's one way, you know, like the kind of subcontracting and contracting of labor, um, you know, services that are increasingly providing for, you know, to make up for like the deficiencies of public services. And so you have a, you know, and in the case of labor, like I think somebody said there's 500 employees or something of the, of, you know, working within the water sector and the rest is all like contracted out. Yeah. The problem I see is like with this complete kind of hollowing out of the government, of the government and of an ability, you know, and like these systems that have sprung up because we need them to be able to survive. Right. But the problem is the more that they exist. Right. Like the more the system can be hollowed out. And I think that's the problem with some of this resilience discourse, right? That yes. you hear around climate change adaptation or green development, right? There's this idea, you know, everybody's talking about like resilience, the resilience of communities, Hurricane Katrina, resilience. And you're just like, this is what resilience looks like. It looks like citizens taking on functions uh, that, of, that the public sector is unable to provide that, you know, continues to hollow out the public sector to the point where like, Essentially, a resili- the weight of resilience is being borne out by, you know, the citizen, the consumer, and the reasons or like, or how this kind of fits into the broader. So there is this kind of, there's a general within the broader like strategies in the country, there's an emphasis increasingly on large scale projects to, you know, collect and kind of to collect water, right? To extract more and more water. And there's really not much work being done on fixing the systems themselves. So there's an emphasis on large scale dam projects and in particular, uh, large scale projects, in particular dams. Um, there's various strategies and all of these strategies really are emphasizing dam projects. Yeah. And there's a lot of, critique, you know, from civil society, from environmentalists, from, you know, researchers, political economists of this favoring of dams. And and some of that critique rests on the fact that, you know, these are, as I think Roland Riachi calls them, white elephant projects, right? They're projects that suck up a lot of money, that, you know, entail really lucrative contracts. It took forever to get some of these, you know, proposals ratified because somebody will propose a strategy and then somebody else will oppose the strategy, you know, because they don't necessarily see the benefit for their community or whatever it is. So you have like multiple strategies that keep getting postponed, you know, projects that, you know, end up having these ballooning 
costs because like it wasn't studied, for example, properly. And they didn't realize like that there's a porous ground and that the dam ends up leaking and you need way more cement than you thought. And so you contract a cement company that has ties to a particular politician. And so they become these just like sinkholes of money. Yeah. And sinkhole, and you know, like generators of profit. But also, and maybe this transitions us to another area that you might have had questions about, but I might be jumping the gun. And it's not just also about local politics. There's a, there's also a global politics that's playing a role in all of this. And that's the role of development agencies um, that are also financing some of these major infrastructure projects, right? So there's, you know, and that are, for example, you know, that are really behind, as I mentioned, this push, you know, to set up the water sector in the 1990s, you know, 2000s for privatization, right? Like, so, so there's, um, because of, you know, what have been, because there's like this, you know, discourse or politics or like ideology of, you know, market environmentalism, green neoliberalism, all of these things that are happening, right? Um, and so there's, you know, that, that this kind of these, this financing of these massive infrastructure projects, which, and here I'll kind of draw on the critique of Karim Aitzabba, who's a development, um, study, you know, he's like a development studies scholar. So he talks about how, you know, this indebtedness and reliance on these, you know, debts also enables some kind of, you know, leeway, whether through structural adjustment policies or, um, you know, certain like policy priorities, right, to get pushed through, right? So there's this kind of combination of, you know, there's these politicians that are, you know, benefiting from these large scale loans with very little oversight. But then there's also this system that's providing these loans, right, and pushing through certain policies. And Karim Sabah is critical of them, uh, for various reasons, among which include... So they lend you money. There's interest on them. They're not high. Uh, and they, they weren't high when they were given, like, you know, 1, 2, 3%. Some of them even go to 0% now. But even that, you know, any bank that, that subscribes to this uh, gets more of a return now through this than they would in Europe. Right? I mean, in Europe, you have zero interest rates of 0.1 or 0.2, you know. At some point, you even had negative interest rates, whatever that's supposed to mean. <clears throat> right? But so, so there's even, you know, it's still a kind of investment that's worthwhile for, for the lender. So, you know, if, if the state lends money through a private lender, that happens. Or, you know, through a state bank, there's still a profit that's happening there. But also there's the opportunity to then, you know, contract, you know, certain like private sector companies to do the work. So there's, you know, he gives an example of the French development agency that often contracts out its projects to, you know, like French water water and wastewater treatment companies from the private sector. So there's kind of this economy as well around, you know, development aid. That's all right. So you have an investment that is based on a debt, right, it's a loan given by the French government who makes sure that a company like uh, Degremont, which is a subsidiary of Suez, you know, one of the big multinationals, gets the contract, does the high-value-added infrastructure, so all the mechanical process, the kind of chemical processes, right, and some Lebanese uh, company, in this case, I think it was Boutek, gets the civil engineering work, and the civil engineering work is the, you know, the 
low value added, but it's a lot of bulk work. So all that goes away, and then you have this piece of infrastructure that doesn't produce anything for anybody because it's just not functional. Right? So, so the losses are then socialized, basically. For Suez, for Veolia, they're the two big ones that, that do most of the uh, wastewater treatment. It's, it's, it's good business. And then Lebanon is small, right? I mean, for them, it's like, okay, whatever. You know, they do it, but it's not, you know, they're more, it's not their target, right? They're more interested, say, in Buenos Aires or, you know. So this is something that's happening in a lot of places in the global south, right? They like every budget. What I want to get back to is that it's not locally funded, it's internationally funded. See, so um, so the question is not anymore, it's the local corruption, but it's a global corruption that is in place. And all the episodes that I enumerate, whether the colonial and the relation of the bourgeois to the colonial power, or the relation of the independentist, uh, post-independentist to the uh, US or Soviet power, uh, and later the relation of politicians and bankers and rentiers to the donors. And we talk about the Hariri uh, era. Um, and then maybe the collapse of all of that uh, since uh, since two years now. Uh, of this, yeah, donors, like now what we understand from donors is that we, we won't give a penny unless reforms are made. But if you look into the reforms, we are get back to the Ottoman Empire uh, Literally, privatization is asked. Um, the increase of VA is asked, you know. So we are getting back to austerity is asked. And um, and we understand that, well, Lebanon is a, is a great microcosm of the world, actually. So one of the things that, you know, Karim Aysabar talks about is that in his work is he talks about how, uh, you know, that certain, like, because funding is so contingent on donors, right? Like the funding for these infrastructures is so contingent on donors um, and donors come with their own priorities, right? Some of what happens in terms of how infrastructure gets developed in the country is a result of some of these priorities. So one thing he writes about is how, you know, he writes about the wastewater treatment system, right? And like, just to give you a sense, there's, I don't remember the figures on collection, but what I've read is something like 8% of wastewater is treated in Lebanon. Okay. Um, collection rates are not very high either. It, of course, varies from region to region. They're not as low as that, but only 8% of water is treated, and some of it is actually treated at very, very primary levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of water, you know, there's a lot of polluted waterways and a lot of pollution going into the Mediterranean. Okay. And so if we look at the wastewater sec, you know, if we look at the wastewater treatment sector in particular, like within, you know, that subsector of water, let's say, right? Kenny Rain Sabah talks about how uh, there's heavy European investment, like of European agencies, various European agencies within there's a disproportionate amount of money within that field coming from European agencies. And the reason for this, he talks about, is because of an interest in protecting the Mediterranean from pollution. And he talks about, you know, the Barcelona Convention and the meeting and all of these, you know, declarations and things that are coming from a realization that Mediterranean waters in places like Marseille, you know, are being, you're getting things like algae bloom that are the result of, you know, agricultural runoff making its way into the Mediterranean. 
And so there's an interest in developing wastewater treatment facilities to stop polluted water from going, you know, wastewater polluted water from going into the Mediterranean from Lebanon. So there's a heavy European investment within this infrastructure, which ends up leading to the massive, like, skewing of where wastewater treatment facilities get built to the coast. Yes. Right? And there's a justification for that, which kind of makes sense, which is like biggest bang for buck, because that's where a lot of the population lives. But it also means that until relatively recently, a lot of the, and with USAID, like funding in the Bukha, but like until very recently, a lot of interior areas, I mean, these are some of the things he writes about, right? Yeah. Uh, a lot of the interior areas don't actually have wastewater treatment facilities. And so you're getting polluted water that's going into the water sources. Yes. You know, various water sources across the country, including the Litani River, one of the most significant rivers in the country, that becomes heavily, heavily polluted. Mm-hmm. But also into places like Nahr al-Karib, which is Where Beirut's water, <laughs> drinking water source. Um, it's not that those coastal wastewater treatment plants are working completely. Some of them ha- are built, but are not, op- many of them actually are built, but are not operating. Yeah. And that's a whole different story. Yes. But, uh, it is that, you know, one of the claims he makes is that there are, you know, there's a, the, that form of disparity within at least initially, the wastewater treatment infrastructure that exists is a result of, you know, certain like donor, you know, is a result of like the presence of particular donors and the interests of particular donors within the country. Yeah. Can you tell us about emergency, mm-hmm. scarcity, shortages? One, I was told scarcity is an economic concept. Okay. Right. Whereas shortage isn't. So we should use the word shortage, right? Because scarcity is kind of, it emerges with this like, you know, capitalist kind of emphasis on resources, finiteness, you know, like. Supply demand. Yeah, exactly. So basically that it's important to use the word shortage. So I'm going to try to start applying this because I didn't even realize that myself. But essentially that, you know, this idea, I mean, once again, Renaud, yes, he does this amazing job of, you know, historicizing these, the notions of plenty or abundance and shortage as they, you know, become kind of prevalent at different periods of Lebanese history. So he says, What's interesting, actually, if we go to the, the this dominant discourse among those three episodes that I was telling you about, is that the first episodes, which is the colonial imperial, came uh, in, like the discourse that was dominant then back then, was, was that Lebanon was the water tower of the Levant, uh, the source of many uh, uh, springs and rivers. So it's a very abundant, endowed uh, um, country, you know, so water endowed country. So the idea that you had a lot of water, but you don't, you, you archaic people, uh, are not able to harness, and we, uh, like colonial power, are here to bring you this missionary vision of civilization and how to harness the water, uh, how to put laws into it, um, how to recognize a private property, so how to uh, um, irrigate with, how to create irrigation networks. The problem wasn't a problem of water availability but rather of water management. And then in the second period, which he called, you know, the national developmentalist period, 
there's somewhat of a continuation of that, you know, different guys, but somewhat of a continuation of this notion of plenty. So water was not scarce back then. And then progressively, at the end of the war, um, like it's something that is global, this discourse that came with climate change. So we are not uh, very, like, it shifted from abundance to uh, scarcity, where well, you need large infrastructure dams uh, that were proposed back during the colonial and developmentalist eras. And uh, now you should use them actually to combat climate change and um, aridity that Lebanon uh, is, uh, well, actually. And it gets mobilized to build these dam projects, right? And a lot of these dam projects are actually dam projects that kind of emerged under the second phase, the nationalist developmentalist phase, right? They're projects, you know, for these big dam projects like the Bisri Dam that is a World Bank funded dam that's supposed to augment the supply of water for Beirut mm-hmm. by damming like a river to the south of Beirut, uh, which actually like activists have actually managed to put enough pressure basically on the World Bank and mobilize civil society here against it enough for it to be at least, if not permanently cancelled, temporarily suspended. Um, so there's, you know, I mean, but that Bisri Dam, basically, like the the idea for it goes back to the, the ideas for building it goes back to the 1950s. So some of these same projects from that era of abundance, right, or notions of abundance, get recycled in the era of scarcity, only now with a new logic around them. That's not touching on natural scarcity, right? Or like the actual material, but that's that's more on like the discursive level. There have been observed changes, for example, not so much in the total amount of average year water supply, but things like the number of days of rain you get, right? Like, so yeah. you get the same amount of rain maybe, but in fewer days. Yes. Um, there, you know, you get, uh, because of warming temperatures, you get less snow melt, so you get a lot of like, snow melting and becoming a water supply earlier during the year. So there are some noticeable material changes that I want to also, you know, emphasize, Um, you know, that and that this is happening on the material level and that a lot of what we were talking about was also on the discursive level. Um, But on the discursive level, this is being mobilized to build projects that don't necessarily make sense. During one of your interviews with Sari Musa, I believe, you discussed a water management plan in, in Lebanon that was designed for 2050. So I'm wondering if you can talk to us about future planning in the midst of such political, economic, environmental uncertainty and instability. In terms of the planning and the recycling of projects and the future and the question of like, how do you even build a future in a place like Beirut or Lebanon where... People don't even know what's going to happen in a week, yes. right? Like this is a really big question, I think, and it's um, and it's something that I know, like Sari Musa, who I also spoke to, who works in the water sector, you know, or who worked in the water sector for many years, um, grappled with while working on a plan for, uh, you know, the f- for water in the um, in the areas of uh, Sidon and Jazin in the south of Lebanon, you know, a plan for 2050. And he describes the absurdity of, you know, planning, knowing that it's almost impossible to know what that future might look like. I really cannot imagine that. And this is this is something that I it's it's really absurd to be designing to to be doing a master plan, to be designing anything. I mean not designing, but doing a, a master plan, for example. 
And while you're working on it, you, you would start asking yourself questions like that. What would happen to what's what the infrastructure that we have now, for example? And what would be, that's more important, what would be the, the, the dynamics of, 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 of things, of politics, uh, the social dynamics in that area, for example, that you're working on in, in 20 years? I mean, there's a, there's a, the, 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 the period we're, we're going through right now puts a lot of questions on, on okay, will everything be the same in, in a few years? I mean, uh, politically, for example. And if things are influenced that much from politics, would, would that influence the, the planning that you are doing? But that, that puts a, That puts another question in my head, actually, on on the way that things are run, and and we've talked about this before. But I think there's a truth to to the that comes from history, and I think the fact that people are doing uh, um, are working in that. Um, in that way, meaning um, uh, having to do whatever they have to do now uh, rather than looking for the future. I mean, I'll find a solution now and then that kind of thinking is, doesn't come from, from, from the absurd. It doesn't come, it's not, it's not about just uh, the fact that I don't care about the future. I mean, the recycling of projects, I think, is kind of related. It's like um, a kind of a piecemeal approach, right? Like there are these strategies, the strategies kind of get recycled. They don't really get built. If they get built, they take forever. Uh, and it's just, you know, there's a problem. We like kind of put a Band-Aid, as you say, right, on it, like for the moment. And I think... It's interesting, like Eric Swingedow talks about this. He's a geographer, you know, he's a geographer, political economist who writes about, you know, the role of, for example, the emergencies, droughts and things like that, right? In pushing through some of these big infrastructure projects and weakening resistance to them, right? And in kind of, um, they get pushed through very quickly without much oversight because they're now, 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 we need them now, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a problem we're going to see increasingly, right? Like these big projects that are being pushed through very, very quickly because what we see as being this long-term problem becomes much more urgent over time. That's my personal opinion. And I think like we already kind of see that here. Like, I mean, it, you and I and Sadia spoke about how, you know, piecemeal things work here, right? Like a lot of it is in Arabic, we have a word, it's called tar'iyah, and I think it translates to mending, right? So there's a lot of mending, patching, cons- patching. Yes. right? So there's a lot of patching happening, yes. right? And I think uh, there are strategies, not much of them happens. A lot of it is like pieces of those strategies get applied, But there's no real serious engagement with some of the things that actually need to happen, you know, for things to work yeah. better. How do you then deal with um, how do you then deal with um, you have you have these structural problems that really need to be taken care of? Because like you said, building a dam is, a, you know, I mean, Um, yeah, the building the dam won't solve the problem because, again, there are structural and infrastructural problems that need to be addressed. But then you have the everyday needs. So how do you kind of reconcile between these two really urgent needs? The structural problem is an urgent need. Absolutely. 
I remember you mentioned Sari addressed this question of urgency versus long-term development and the real conundrum we're in. So maybe we can listen to him as we also think of how to get out of it. Uh, reality of, of things is is that yes, you always deal with that um, situation of okay, we'll find a solution for this, and then we'll worry about the rest later. Uh, what's more immediate? Uh, but that also comes from there's the history, but there's also the the economical side of things. I think there's a there's also a. Um, the price of the the fuel and whether the uh, the authorities can afford actually to uh, to keep on running that system. So you could have uh, parties, uh, political parties, uh, financing these operations, uh, and it happens on a on a uh, village level. It doesn't have necessarily to do with uh, the authorities themselves. But I mean, facing uh, the lack of something that vital you have to find a solution and you cannot say no, basically. How we get out of it, it's really... Well, you can, well we cannot, I mean, I'm sorry to cut you off, but no. we cannot get out of it as a water problem alone. I mean, this is mm-hmm. also what you've been saying all along, is that, again, it's not, and I've said this before, is that it's not an isolation of a water problem, it's actually a larger structural problem. I mean, you have a, you have a system that is based on sectarian politics, and again, this is... This is not exceptional. I mean, maybe the sectarian is unique here, but the problems that come up of these of power dynamics, of, of uh, power struggles in, in internal conflicts in countries, histories of colonization, extraction, all of this. Um, th- these are, I mean, it, these are things that you cannot just kind of... There is no solution to just the water solution. The water is tied to banking and debt and... Uh, the environment and and uh, people's livelihoods and uh, labor and these are not I mean it, 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 again like I mean I used this word before but it's not in isolation and I think that the solutions again whether long term development or short term or short term kind of humanitarian aid um, it's the the problem is much larger and I think how to get out of it so it's like where do you start unraveling this like kind of you know, yarn ball that is like so humongous, where do you even start to untangle it? And, and understanding that at the end, it's all kind of really super connected. So I understand, I, I really understand the frustration, I understand the anger, and I understand... Maybe I'll say this. I remember, I, I remember speaking to a fisherman who told me that climate change... I asked him about the effects of climate change and what he sees. He does deep diving. Um, yeah, free diving, fishing. Free dive fishing for actual sustainability reasons and, and I guess as a hobby also. And he was... And I, when I asked him about climate change and what has he seen in terms of changes, I remember that he told me it's, it's not... He was like, of course it's affecting. Of course. But our biggest problem is illegal fishing and like no regulations on fishing and i sense that there is a similar i mean this was a conversation that i had with this fisherman but my sense from our conversation today is that there might be a similar attitude here and the the issue of climate change in the mediterranean is is um is completely present in, in our whole conversation today but it, it doesn't, I mean, I don't know if I read this wrong, but it doesn't seem like it's the primary concern of, of the kind of, let's say, researchers and, and water practitioners that you've spoken to. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, right, like on a discursive level and the work that discourse can do, right, we mentioned this idea about, you know, you know, this emerging notion of scarcity or shortage, right, that emerges from, you know, to which, you know, for which, you know, climate change is one of the, you know, reasons given, right? Um, and, and then how that kind of becomes mobilized to build these white elephant projects that, you know, keep this development machine running, right? So in a sense, it's definitely there. Mm. I don't necessarily know if it's the main concern okay. in terms of the decisions that are being actually made on the ground. Like, I think maybe it's a, it's part of the discourse and the rhetoric. And, and I don't necessarily know if that's not the case in a lot of places. Yes. You know, the real issue is, the question of like, we need to make sure that like we can provide services, mm. right? And like, we don't run out of water. It seems to me that there's an urgent, uh, there's always an urgent problem that you need to solve before getting there. Uh, every time this subject is around, uh, there's, a, and and it's true actually, there's a, there's a, there's a problem in, in, in having enough supply uh, and in the management itself, uh, that there's no place. Uh, I mean, it's not that there's no place. There is a place for that, uh, but um, people don't think of that as an immediate thing to look at uh, because there's the urgency of of, of having the the water, um, and that also. Uh, gets back to the idea of having uh, uh, looking at what we have as resources and projecting for the future. Uh, if this is done properly, uh, then you'd have um, enough time to look at this uh, this particular problem and addressing it. Um, the fact that there's always um, uh, a lack in the supply, for example, uh, a problem somewhere in the system that is is working, uh, the urgency of solving things right now uh, to 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 have a to have a um, um, short term solution uh, for things, um, I think is preventing um, uh, preventing us from looking at at um, uh, at climate change. That shouldn't prevent us from looking at, at climate change. It's not a, uh, enough reason, but I'm, I'm talking about the practical side of what I saw on the ground. Once again, we come back to this question of urgency where climate change gets put on the back burner, right? And it's about like, we need to develop a system right now. Like we need to make sure we don't run out of water tomorrow, yeah. right? And so we need to like build, you know, whatever infrastructure in order to be able to make sure we don't do that. And we might use climate change when we talk about that, but climate change isn't necessarily the driving concern. It's part of the rhetoric. But, but not like, okay. It's maybe part of the motivation, but I don't think it's the main drive, at least from mm. the conversations that I had um, with people. Is it, it seems like there's a lot more of a kind of like urgency on the ground type of situation. Right. And I think now that includes things like where are we going to get the fuel to turn on the pumps, right? Yes. 
in order to make sure that like, you know, our treatment plants are running, our water treatment, you know, drinking water treatment plants or like freshwater treatment plants are running or, or, you know, that water is pumped across. Like there's a lot more, this has become like even more, this kind of urgency of the moment has become even more present today than it was like five years ago. Before our episode comes to an end, Nadia, do you want to have any last thoughts? The critique of like the development structure is a critique of a particular vision of development. It's not not wanting development and it's, you know, a critique of the power structures that are embedded within that vision of development and that are like, that allow it and that make it proliferate. How we get out of this, right, is very difficult because... We're in an even worse case today than we are, you know, in the 1990s and 2000s when this spiraling debt situation happened. There are solutions that are being proposed by critics of the system. And I think Kerim Sabah talks about, you know, like a people's vision of development or sovereign development, right? Like alternative, it's not that we want to throw development out the window, right? Development is important. It's that we don't want a particular model of development, right? Yeah. And that's a model of development that comes from a particular structural history. Yeah. We want a different form of development that really like thinks about things like well-being instead of economic growth. This is a great last note to leave us um, with, um, to think about what kind of other models or, solution, or solutions we need our, in our current conditions. Um, so thank you. Um, but also I really want to thank you again, uh, Nadia, for your time and for this very, very rich um, engagement today. That was the fourth episode of Aridity Lines. Special thanks to our guest, Nadia Christidi and Karim Sabah, Roran Riyashi and Sari Musa. Aridity Lines is commissioned by TBA21 Academy and co-produced with Radio Ma'azif. It was conceived by Rim Shadid and Barbara Kasavekia as part of the current three Mediterraneans Thus Waves Come in Pairs after Etel Adnan. Our guests, Nadia Christidi and Karim Aid Sabah, Roland Riyashi and Sari Musa. Hosted by Rim Shadid, edited by Barbara Kasavekia and Rim Shadid, Introduction credits voiceover Jinan Chaya, sound editor Mosher, produced by Maria Montero Sierra. Hear more episodes at ocean-archive.org or subscribe with your podcast provider.